Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 249, The Sort of Knaves I Cannot Rule. I try to resist making too many appeals for members, but it's been a few weeks, so let me make one now. Being a member of the History of England brings you great power and great responsibility. Immediate access to a library of 56 podcast episodes and 31 hours of listening. Plus, you get at least 90 minutes worth each month of new podcast topics, covering topics like wills or biographies like Thomas More. There's a series of on the history of Scotland, and we're now approaching the wars of independence. William Wallace, Robert Bruce, the Declaration of Our Broth. We're just starting an occasional series of podcasts about Britain and the sea, and I'm working on a serialisation of the lives of William Marshall and Eleanor of Aquitaine. So, one reason to join is to get jolly good podcasts, if I say so myself, at jolly good value. But if that's not enough, I give you another reason. Your membership will support me doing the History of England, which remains the love of my life. So, sign up at the website, thehistoryofengland.co.uk, and choose the Become a Member option. Last time, I irritatingly rather left you hanging with the French fleet sighted in the eastern approaches of the Solent in July 1545. The Solent, for those of you who do not know, is a stretch of water off the south coast, running about 20 miles between the mainland and the Isle of Wight. The origin of the name the Solent itself is unknown, but it's old, old, oh very old, first written down as far as we know in 731, but it is pre-English. It contains the Celtic Went element, that is the same as the element in names such as Gwent. The Solent can be a tricky and dangerous stretch of water, especially if nautical idiots like me are to be found on it. Fortunately, the last time I've been sighted on the Solent, I was in the hands of at least the reasonably competent. So thank you, Pat, for that. 
I delayed last time because there is a reasonably famous event on the way and I didn't want to mess it up and hurry it. But look, before I get to that, let me point out that England was genuinely in a major spot of bother. The French fleet was much bigger. The French fleet was better equipped with galleys. And what we said last week was that those are better designed for inshore fighting. They carried heavy ship-killing cannon and they were manoeuvrable with all those oars. So as the French were sighted, Henry was on the ship Great Harry, his flagship, along with John Dudley Viscount Lyle. So Henry scuttled ashore to take up position on the shore fortress, South Sea Castle, to watch the show. History does not record if popcorn was provided. Anyway, the French galleys approached, and so the English tried to come out to meet them before they could wreak mayhem. But there was no wind, and they were helpless. For some reason, Henry's galleys are not mentioned, so it could be that they were defending the western approaches of the Solent, since we know there was a squadron doing that very thing. But there were the English row barges, and they might well have engaged. But it's a little academic, because fortunately, the wind did then finally get up, and from the harbour came Henry's fleet, led by the Henry Grasdieu and the Mary Rose. Some of you may have spotted the famous event now. The Mary Rose was a big carrack, She'd been in service for an impressive 33 years in 1545, commissioned by Henry in the early years of his reign, and in 1536 she'd been rebuilt, increasing her from 500 to 700 tonnes. The previous night she'd been presented to George Carew, a 40-year-old relation of the executed Nicholas Carew and something of a reformed adventurer. George was presented with this magnificent ship and made not only its captain, but also vice-admiral of the fleet. In Anthony Anthony's picture of the fleet, we can see that the Mary Rose would have made a brave and colourful sight as the wind filled her sails at last with the flag of St George flying from her four masts, the bright and colourful painting of her bullocks and the massive streamers following freely behind her. Though, on going into battle, some of the fancies like streamers would not be there. Instead, over the weather deck or the top deck in the waist of the ship, if you like, a netting was stretched over the heads of the crew. And this was common enough. It was designed to prevent boarding parties from leaping onto her deck. Meanwhile, however, all was not well. Her new captain was less impressed, not with the ship at his command, but with the human beings. I have the sort of knaves I cannot rule, he was heard to growl. Language might have been one of his problems. His crew was drawn from all over the place, a lot from southern Europe as well as England. But maybe there were command and discipline problems as well. But never mind. Onward to war. The Mary Rose sailed towards the French fleet and glory. As she approached, she turned her starboard towards the French galleys and let fly a broadside to clear the opposing decks of the men crowding to prevent boarding. And then the watching crowd saw her start to go about to turn her larboard side towards the enemy and give them another taste of English steel taste of English shrapnel, waste metal and bits of stone. But to their horror, they quickly realised something was wrong. Rather than heeling over in the turn and then righting herself and firing, the big ship wasn't coming upright. She was heeling over more and more and cries of alarm and panic drifted over the water as cannon and supplies crashed across the decks, shifting weight dramatically and pushing the Mary Rose even faster over. Frantic sailors then tried to escape the dying ship and leap into the shallow sea. 
and only then did the full horror of the situation become apparent. The thick boarding netting trapped almost everyone onto the ship, except those in the masts. And horribly quickly, the screams of the sailors were drowned as the ship sank beneath the waves, not to be seen for another 437 years. Oh, my gentlemen, oh, my gallant, my gallant men, Henry is reported to have exclaimed as the disaster unfolded. 500 men died, including her new commander, and only 25 of her crew escaped. There are a few reasons why we remember the Mary Rose, primarily, of course, because of the dramatic story of the archaeological rescue, but that rescue reminded of of the horrific death of 500 trapped sailors. And then there's the drama and the humiliation of Henry and his flagship. It's also a bit of a mystery. Why did the Mary Rose really sink? After all, here is a ship with decades of service, and even after her rebuilding, she'd sailed along the channel with no apparent trouble. There are a few theories helpfully listed on the Mary Rose's website. One, and the most often repeated, is that holiday question, did anybody shut the back door, or in this case, that when she went about, someone left the starboard gun ports open, <laughs> come on, and let all the water in as she turned. This seems mega unlikely, surely. It's a very, very fundamental thing for multiple people to forget to do. All this George's grumble about the quality of his staff. Maybe there was some kind of mutiny going on. Or the eye was taken collectively off the ball. Or, more popular, is to blame Henry VIII, because that's always fun. Maybe he'd insisted that too much ordnance be crammed aboard the Mary Rose in her rebuilding and therefore produced an unbalanced boat. Or finally, the last theory, much beloved of the French actually and usually ignored by the English. Maybe she was, you know, sunk by the glorious French Navy? Well, we'll never know. Now, you might think that the French would be galvanised by this dramatic own goal, but the rest of the battle was in fact very unsatisfactory for the French. Despite their overwhelming numbers, their admiral, Danibal, was sick with the gout and desperate to be on dry land and his fleet was racked with plague. He withdrew as the English ships emerged from the harbour. He then made an abortive landing on the Isle of Wight. Now, I know the inhabitants of the Isle of Wight are most hardy, really. But come on, if you can't even conquer the Isle of Wight, it's a pretty poor lookout for conquering the whole of England. Dudley's fleet, meanwhile, had been swollen by ships freshly arrived from Cornwall and was now over a 100 ships strong. And they pursued Danabor as he sailed along the coast to Sussex, where a second engagement took place little more impressive than the first, to be fair, partly because the wind dropped. French galleys rode into the attack, but were well dealt with by the responding English galleasses, so those are the composite Carrack plus oars type of ship. The following day, the next round was expected, but as dawn broke, the French were nowhere to be seen. 50,000 men, 200 ships, had legged it back to the Seine. Francis I spent no time preparing any red carpets for his admiral, though Danibal was indeed carpeted. Francis I was livid. He'd just achieved the impressive task of making Henry's foreign campaigns look positively glorious. It's an engagement that's been described as unsatisfactory to both sides, but really, actually, wasn't it something of a result for the English? This was a very major threat, a genuinely massive fleet and army, and it had got precisely nowhere. And apart from the unfortunate incident of the Mary Rose, John Dudley at all times had managed his fleet well and stared down a far superior enemy in terms of numbers. One man who was unexpectedly not able to share the joy with Henry for long was his pal, 
Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk. It was all very sudden. Up to the 21st of August, he'd attended Privy Council meetings, everything seemed fine and indeed dandy. And then on the 22nd of August, 1545, he suddenly died at home at Guildford. Henry appeared to be gutted and sang his old friend's praises. For as long as Suffolk had served him, he had never betrayed a friend or knowingly taken unfair advantage of an enemy. Brandon pulled off that trick of remaining Henry's friend throughout, start to finish. Anne and a few Thomases might have mentioned when he arrived at the pearly gates that that was no mean achievement. However, despite this victory of sorts, the fact remains that all Henry had achieved in the campaigns of 1543 to 1545 was the extremely precarious capture of a French city, constantly under siege from the French, and whose future looked as solid as the English middle order batsmen and cricket, and the cost, gentle listeners, the cost. Henry had lived a charmed life, money-wise. He'd been left a nice nest egg by his dad, and he'd spent it within a couple of years on war and partying. But never mind, he'd found an extraordinary servant in Cromwell, who'd kept the money rolling in by carving out all that income and assets back from the church, surely one of the greatest windfalls ever for the English monarchy. And his vision had been a permanently endowed monarchy, strong and well-financed, who would surely only ever have to go to Parliament to consult or to raise money in the most dire of situations. But Cromwell had reckoned without his boss's itchy little fingers. Henry's last Cesar was a little pricey, shall we say. And by a little pricey, I mean incredibly toe-curlingly, butter-clenchingly expensive, terminally expensive. Just to put it in perspective then, you, like me, may have got used to the sort of revenues we mention from time to time as generated by the English crown. £100,000 a year, give or take, which Cromwell had taken to north of £200,000, quite big figures compared to previous Plantagenet monarchs, good going. A pimple compared to Francis and Charles, obviously, but not bad for a small damp island off the coast of Europe. And the campaign of 1544 had been planned to cost £250,000. So that's a lot, but you know, manageable if they were careful and minded the pennies. Instead, the 1544 campaign alone cost £650,000. And that was just the start of it. Over the next 12 months, a further £560,000 was spent. £216,000 was spent on the Navy, which alone was almost unbearable. The river of money continued to flow outwards. Between 1542 and Henry's death in 1547, he spent £2 million. There was no way Henry and his Privy Council could handle this within normal expedience, and the desperate efforts to raise money which seriously damaged the Tudor economy caused hardship and suffering for all Henry's subjects, but particularly the poorer members. And it would affect the future of the English constitution almost as much as the Reformation and his use of parliaments. Here's what they did. They went back to the hated technique of his father and the Yorkists, the delightfully named benevolence. Named by a sharp marketing consultant with square glasses, a flowery shirt and a hipster beard on his way to a boutique early morning cereal bar. The reality of the gently named benevolence was, hey, rich dude, you do want to lend me some money, don't you? Um, or else? These were followed by forced loans and heavy subsidies from both the lay lords and the church in 1543 and 1545. This wasn't enough, though. So, 
there was an avalanche of sales of ex-monastic lands that had been supposed to be endowing the monarchy for the rest of time. So that's the end of that plan. Sorry, Cromers. Still, it wasn't enough. And so the last of the family church silver began to be sold off. The last bunch of church establishments, the colleges of secular priests and free chapels, the chanterers, established to pray for the souls of the dead by the wills of the people. Henry even began to consider how to borrow church plate. This sounds bad. But just to add a bit of justification, the evangelical Hartford applauded the move of borrowing church plate on the ground that God's service, which consisteth not in jewels, plate, or ornaments of gold and silver, cannot thereby be anything diminished, and those things better employed for the weal and defence of the realm, which neatly sums up the evangelical attitude. But anyway, either way, it still wasn't enough. Henry went on to the Antwerp money market to raise £75,000 at rates of interest as high as 14%. But it still wasn't enough. So, Henry turned to an expedient the French had routinely used, but which the English had bravely resisted, a debasement of the coinage. As you may remember from the Hundred Years' War and the French, the idea was that you brought in as much coin as you could and then you remade those coins, using less than the face value of bullion in so doing. And we're not talking of just a smidge either. Indeed, the word smidge would be most inappropriate in most circumstances. The 1544 coins had silver as low as 50% of the face value. That is dreadful, isn't it? But those of the 1546 recoinage had silver just a third of the face value, would you believe? And embarrassingly, they were so rubbish that they turned a coppery red colour with use. On the plus side, the enterprise yielded at least £250,000 and probably a lot more than that. But what it produced, or actually aggravated is a better word because it was by no means all Henry's fault, was a phenomenon to which England and medieval Europe were completely unprepared. I speak of the I-word, the word with which I spent a considerable part of my youth in the 1970s, inflation. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Inflation is part of the everyday now. But the very idea of inflation then was just, I mean, weird to the Tudor mind. A day's labor cost what it cost. Why would that change? They were not open to the idea of supply and demand. You might remember the outraged response of the king and the nobility after the Black Death to the idea that labourers, being much harder to come by, might charge a little more for their services. The result were laws to try and stop any change in prices. Obviously, people were used to bread prices fluctuating with the harvest, but there was a reason for that that they could see. What they couldn't understand was the quiet background creeping inflation, around 2% a year on average. Now, I can see you all laughing happily at the mere thought of 2% inflation. I mean, that's hardly worth calling inflation, is it? That's just breathing. Well, 
2% a year catches up on you, especially since employers saw absolutely no reason to raise wages by 2% or indeed by any percent. This is not all Henry's fault, by any means. We will spend a bit more time on the 16th century inflation at some future episode, but inflation was also a European-wide phenomenon, possibly maybe perhaps driven by bullion from the New World, but it's controversial. But there is no doubt at all that it was made much worse by war, taxation and debasement of the coinage. It has been noted that Henry was by no means devoid of political radar. He began to pick up that there was a sense of crisis in the corridors outside the private rooms in which he now skulked. Gardner was finding it difficult to see the bright side of life. We're at war with France and Scotland. We have enmity with the Bishop of Rome. We have no assured friendship here with the Emperor. And we have received from the Landgrave, chief captain of the Protestants, such displeasure that he has cause to think us angry with him. Our war is noisome to the realm and to all our merchants that traffic through the narrow seas. We are in a world where reason and learning prevail not, and covenants are little regarded. The councillor, Thomas Rottersley, was tasked with raising a prodigious war chest for a triumphant campaign for 1546. When he reported in, all the other councillors could see that his hands were red and raw from the pain of pushing them as far down the back of the sofa of state as he possibly could. The best he came up with was the financial equivalent of a few old coins, multiple buttons, an old banana skin and a remote control to the telly, or more precisely, 15,000 quid from the mints, £3,000 from the Court of Augmentations and £1,000 each from the Duchy of Lancaster and the Court of Wards and £1,000 from the Exchequer. It's not great. It may have been this that decided Henry that it was no use anymore. Nonetheless, though he allowed at last his negotiators to talk to the French about peace, he played hardball. Hartford was sent to France again with a reasonably substantial army and the deal that was finally signed in June 1546 with France meant that Henry kept Boulogne for eight years, and then, when he gave it up, would be paid two million crowns. Where Charles had refused to have the phrase Supreme Head of the Church in his treaty with England, Francis gave not a tinker's curse, and happily included it. The French did not quite forget their Scottish allies. They insisted on the occlusion of a clause whereby Henry promised not to attack the Scots unless they attacked him. With the level of mutual raiding going on across the border, the clause was a waste of ink in the longer term. Henry continued his rough wooing of the Scots, insisting that they should send that infant Mary Queen of Scots to the English court, where she could live until ready to marry Edward. The Scots had absolutely no intention of doing such a daft thing. But in 1545, Hartford had again been sent to devastate Scottish border villages, and so the wooing continued in a suitably rough way. And at the end of 1546, Hartford was preparing another raid for 1547. In Henry's mind, the Scots were just breakers of treaties. For the Scots, each act of violence simply stiffened their determination not to marry their daughter to the son of a bloke that kept beating them up, which seems not unreasonable. Let us return, though, to the English court for the last few years of Henry's life, because it is a bun fight, a bun fight of global proportions, and I would like to set the scene for you all with a few dramatis personae sort of thing. I will introduce you to three critical figures, Richard Rich, Thomas Rottersley and William Paget. But first of all, we should survey the trophy cabinet that everyone was fighting for. What was the prize? 
What was the objective of said squabbling? Well, obviously, there was a general theme of personal power. That kind of goes without saying. But putting that to one side, the prize was nothing less than the soul of England. It would be the application of 2020 hindsight to suppose that when Henry married Catherine Parr in 1543, everyone was preparing for Henry's death, but his health was very obviously not good, and everybody must have been nervously aware that at some point, probably in the not-too-far-distant future, Henry was going to croak. And when said croaking was visited upon the kingdom, what then, gentle listeners? What then? A minority was a racing certainty. And who would control the religious future of the country? Could the country's soul be saved? The constituents of the Privy Council would divide along sectarian lines, although it's true to say also that there were plenty of those who chose their religious faction on the basis of which one of them was most likely to bring them to power rather than which one of them was most likely to save their immortal soul. Nor was it just about religion. Let us not forget Norfolk, since, of course, as far as Norfolk and his son, the Earl of Surrey, were concerned, this was a world which should, of course, be led by the natural leaders of the kingdom. The great magnates, of course. The nobility. Oh, led by Norfolk. Did I mention that? Members a few weeks ago have heard about the Earl of Surrey, who was in a slightly odd position since he was more aligned in religious matters with reformists than with conservatives. But for Surrey, family, i.e. Howard family, trumped God. And his thirst for the triumph of the Howard clan was paramount. So, did all of that make sense? What I'm saying, in words of one syllable, is that the struggle was to be in a position to dominate any Regency Council that followed the death of the King. Some were motivated by power, some because they could then either confirm the Reformation or reverse it. Sorry for the preceding blather. So, let's have a quick survey of those three players I mentioned. Richard Rich, Thomas Rottersley and William Paget. Richard Rich we have not introduced before, or only mentioned Richard Rich, ladies and gentlemen. Rich is a name of which you may be aware, though, because the young Richard Rich appeared in A Man for All Seasons, which made him famous, and, of course, damned his reputation for all time as a weak, greedy, perjuring man without the strength of character of Thomas More. Why, Richard? It profits a man nothing to give his soul for the whole world. But for Wales... This is, of course, as scandalous a statement as any you are ever likely to meet, on the grounds that it appears to suggest a serious undervaluing of Wales, and because Richard Rich, presented in the film, was of an utterly venal man who lied and perjured himself for advancement, completely making up Moore's statement. In fact, he was probably more likely guilty of entrapping Moore into an statement, as he had done to Fisher. That having been said, it's difficult to get too upset about a slur on Richard Rich character. Really it is. Bambi, he was not. He was the son of John Rich of the magnificently named Penton Musey in Hampshire. What is it about Hampshire and her place names? Farley Wallop and all that. There's a tradition that Rich was the son of a London merchant, which is apparently wrong, though there must have been a family connection somewhere to said merchant family, and Rich did grow up in London and may well have therefore known Thomas More, though probably not to the extent suggested in A Man for All Seasons. Rich chose the law as his route to the top through the Inns of Court, and despite the above Welsh slur, Rich was made Attorney General of Wales in 1532, well before Thomas More's incarceration. More did indeed have a low opinion of Rich. As yourself can tell, I am very sorry you compel me to say... You are esteemed very light of your tongue, a great dicer, 
and of no commendable fame. And so in your house at the temple, where hath been your chief bringing up, were you likewise accompted. Rich certainly was a most bodaciously ambitious man. His religious politics were almost certainly traditional from conviction, but plastic from ambition. Like many in his position, he participated with some enthusiasm in the dissolution. It was he that destroyed the Priory of St Bartholomew's at Smithfield, while also beautifying the church, it has to be said. It's a lovely place, and you can see Rich's Tudor entrance there to this day. Rich's career would continue on through Catholic Mary's time and Protestant Elizabeth's time, so here was a man able to cut his religious jib according to the wind. But all things being equal, Rich would prefer a return to conservative practice, and so aligned himself after Cromwell's fall with Stephen Gardner and the Conservatives. And anyway, the Evangelicals would have been an odd decision for a privy councillor bent on power, with Cromwell gone and with the more conservative King's Book now out. Their cause was not finished, but it wouldn't be the betting man's first choice without some pretty attractive odds to encourage him. A similar calculation was made by Thomas Rottersley, a leading exponent of the values of an unpronounceable surname, which has been variously pronounced Risley, Rottersley and Risley, delete as applicable. Thomas Rottersley was a cousin of Charles Rottersley, the author of A Chronicle of the Times and the son of a London merchant, a draper in this case. Where have we heard that before? Tudor England is becoming something of a triumph for social mobility. Rottersley's progression to a position of power followed the trajectory of a university education, but he did not complete his degree, or indeed turn to the law as Richard done. But instead, he directly pursued a career at court as a bureaucrat. And it was Thomas Cromwell who championed his cause in 1524. By the 1530s, he was a favourite of both Cromwell and the King, and for good reason. He was intelligent, diplomatic, discreet, able to handle difficult matters and bring them to a conclusion. He was hard-working, conscientious. He was also well-connected, with a number of links, especially to Stephen Gardiner. So Gardiner had taught him law at Cambridge University. While Gardiner was the King's secretary, he had Rottersley working for him. His wife was related, and Rottersley was friendly with Jermaine Gardiner as well. So there were lots of positive connections. But actually, through the 1530s, the relationship between the two was a bit uneasy, because Rottersley was an enthusiast for reform, unsurprisingly maybe given his relationship with Cromwell. But then, when Cromwell fell, Rottersley was one of those who desperately scrabbled to distance himself from his former master. Oh, never could stand the bloke, really. Dear, oh dear. Things I had to put up with, you would not believe. That sort of thing. It was a close call for him, though. He was examined. One of Gardner's henchmen, Walter Chandler, made various accusations against him. The atmosphere of the Privy Council was something of a volatile nightmare, but in the end, Rottersley was too useful to the King. And so, poor old Walter Chandler was forced to stand in front of Rottersley and the Privy Council and apologise for his slander. It's worth remembering that we are in a society here that values honour to the degree where the wrong greeting in the street could lead to bloodshed. And it's also unlikely Henry's Court would have featured in an HR monthly trade magazine for the best positive working environment, poison dripped from the very tapestries. So, Rottersley switched horses from reformist to conservative religion. It's easy to be cynical, and actually being cynical is probably pretty justified in Henry's court of the 1540s, but it's worth noting in Rottersley's defence that by backing religious conservatism, he was also simply implementing his king's will at that time. 
But you have to think that the man was desperate to avoid losing his influence, position on the Privy Council, and, of course, potentially, his life. So, in summary, in the wake of Cromwell's fall, like Rich and other members of the council, Rottersley stood at Norfolk and Gardiner's side, working to undermine the evangelicals on the council and seize control of the world after Henry. Let me mention just one more, then, one William Paget. If Rottersley came from a less glorious background than Norfolk would approve of, the same was even more true of William Paget, a man 38 years old in 1543. The insult thrown at Paget by Surrey at his trial was Catchpole. Catchpole was a bailiff, because Paget was the son of a poor sergeant at arms in London. His rise to power and influence was therefore all the more extraordinary, and it marked him. William Paget was deeply motivated by power, wealth and security, and he was a subtle and ruthless politician. One observer would mark, He will have one part in every pageant, if he may, by paying or praying put in his foot. The sixteenth equivalent of two attributes delightfully described by two handy clichés I shall now deploy, having his finger in every pie and running with the hare and hunting with the hounds. Before we condemn Paget, though, let us note that Paget made his fortune and won his place at the high table by talent and talent alone, by making himself indispensable. His route was similar to Rottersley, St Paul's School and Cambridge University, and like Rottersley he therefore had good connections with Gardiner. Let us note that good governance really mattered to Paget, doing a good job, administering the world well as it should be. It was to that end that all his politicking was bent, or at least much of his politicking was bent. I suspect he may have operated a tidy desk policy, a dangerous breed if ever there was one. But there's no denying that when he finally won his place on the council in 1543, everything about Paget was ambivalent. He had a reputation for being involved with evangelicals at Cambridge University, but the imperial ambassador had noted him as resolute against Protestants. He was a friend of Gardiner and Rottersley, yet also of Edward Seymour, the Earl of Hertford, a notable evangelical on the council. When Mary came to power, he would be seen as a perfectly acceptable religious traditionalist. And William Paget won his place because he held the position Cromwell had known to be utterly critical. He was the king's secretary. He was always at the king's side, always his first port of call for the difficult jobs, always the first to be able to make a suggestion quietly in the king's ear. And as the king grew more and more reclusive, his position became increasingly valuable, increasingly powerful. So, ladies and gentlemen, I give you William Paget. Up to 1544 then, Norfolk, Gardiner and the Conservatives on the Privy Council had had their successes, but equally their setbacks. Bringing down Cromwell was undoubtedly a crowning triumph, and we've heard that in 1541, Ralph Sadler and Thomas Wyatt were accused and imprisoned for treason, but the dismay of the Conservatives, they'd been released by the King. They'd targeted Cranmer in 1543 and 1544, but been thwarted by the King's love for his Archbish, and by the work of the Evangelicals in the Privy Chamber, like Anthony Denny, to protect their own. So, although the Conservative star was in the ascendant in 1544, Norfolk, Gardiner and the Conservatives could by no means be sure of ultimate victory. And in 1544, Cranmer was no longer alone. Edward Seymour, the Earl of Hertford, had grown in influence and Henry had married a queen with strong evangelical convictions so that Anne Boleyn at last had a worthy successor. It's to Catherine and the politics of power we will turn next week and to the fate of a young woman from Lincolnshire called Anne Askew.
Thank you for listening, everyone, and do consider membership. Have a look at thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash become a member where you can find out more. In the meantime, good luck, everyone, and have a great week. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 